As I said, we're going to be uh, finishing this morning a little series on friendship that we've been looking at in um, these last few weeks. I think sometimes as Christians, we make the mistake of dividing secular and sacred um, or, or elements of our life that we would put in the spiritual box and elements of our life that we put in the non-spiritual box. And I think the premise of someone's book like Ken Shigematsu's book, God in My Everything, is that every part of our life is given to God as worship and is an element and a part of our worship and our, our being in God. And so one of the quotes that we read in the last couple of weeks was that friendship is an important and as an important part of our spiritual development as prayer and fasting and Bible reading and and some of the things that we would put in the spiritual box. But actually relating to one another and how we do that is fundamental to our discipleship, to our following Jesus. We were made for this. We were made for relationship with God and we were made for relationship with one another. So the last couple of weeks we've been looking at some of the pillars of friendship. We've been looking at the power of friendship for our physical bodies, the way friendship and relationship physically affects us, emotionally determines us. Uh, we, we were looking at the patterns of friendship of Jesus, the, the, the fact that Jesus had circles of friendship, that he, he had the disciple whom he loved, the beloved disciple of Jesus, John, and then he had kind of the, the three that he would take with him, Peter, James, and John. Then he had the 12 and the 72 and the crowds beyond that. And we were looking at the, the, the pillars of friendship in commonality, that it's so important, the, the C.S. Lewis moment of you too, you, you too, where we make that connection with someone. And actually our commonality around the gospel is so important. And also we looked at the importance of time and presence. And then last week we spent some time looking at our, one of our, our church values, that we are a people-focused church. And we want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people. St. John of the Cross said that mission is putting love where love is not. And we talked last week when we talked about reaching out to the unchurched and loving the unchurched. The ministry of small gestures, those extras in our lives, those people that we will meet only once, but that we will perhaps spread to them the perfume of Jesus. We talked about the ministry of small talk and finding the green shoots of grace in the backyards of people's lives. And we talked about the gift of hospitality. I showed the clip of Rosaria Butterfield and uh, the fact that um, she was a radical, feminist, lesbian, anti-Christian uh, professor at Syracuse University and wrote a polemic against uh, faith and against Christianity and... and uh, and a, a Presbyterian minister reached out to her and invited her into his home and made her dinner uh, for the next two years, befriended his neighbor, served her food, and shared with her the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she was radically saved and changed and transformed through the gift of hospitality, the hospitality that is found throughout Scripture and that Jesus practiced so much we used last week the stories of Zacchaeus and Jesus going to his home and we talked about friends of the mat, those that carry the paralytic to Jesus and we talked also last week about the importance of being a church where people can play their part, the third part of our statement and the importance of service in, in that serving together is a great way to build 
friendship, serving alongside one another. Um, it is a, is a great way to get to know people and, and to make friends. And we also talked about intergenerational friendship last week, finding a Jethro like Moses and a Joshua, someone older than us, someone younger than us, but the, the power of intergenerational friendship. I was reading an article in the Atlantic magazine this week uh, by Julie Beck. And Julie Beck is a writer for the Atlantic magazine. And she's been doing something for the last three years called The Friendship Files. And what she's been doing is she's been interviewing people about friendship and talking to people about the power of friendship. She started off with one interview and she was so moved by what she saw about the power of friendship that she developed a whole series and for three years she wrote articles called The Friendship Files. And at the end of that three-year period, as she wrapped up her little series, um, she identified, through all of these interviews, six forces that fuel friendship. And I thought it was interesting as I read this article that many of them were, were ones that we've been covering the last few weeks. So I'm going to recap them through her article. And then there's two things I want to focus on this morning as we wrap up this series. The six forces that fuel friendship um, from the Atlantic magazine. The first one that she identified was accumulation. Um, and she subtitles that time spent together. The simplest, she writes, the simplest and most obvious force that forms and sustains friendship is time spent together. Time, writes Phil Knox in his book, The Best of Friends, is the oxygen of friendship. And great friendship takes a great deal of time and intentionality. We covered that. And um, Robert Dunbar, in his research over many years into this area, says that we need to spend at least nine minutes a day nurturing our, our best friendships, or at least one hour a week. We said that it takes 300 hours to form a best friendship. So time is absolutely essential, and Jesus called people to be with him. He spent inordinate amounts of time with those that were closest to him, and that is where the transformation took place. The second pillar or force of friendship that Julie Beck identified was attention. And again, we talked about that, and we talked about being good listeners, and being good conversationalists, and ministering in small talk, and being present being present with our friends, being physically present. Paying attention goes a long way when forging unexpected friendships. And Phil Knox writes, sometimes we miss the people that God is providing for us because we do not look well enough at those he has put right in front of us. I love the way that Jesus noticed people. Don't miss people. Don't miss the people that God has placed in your life. The, the people that live next door to you, the people that you work alongside with. Paying attention is so important, she identified, in developing friendship. The third area that she mentions in her article is intention, and she speaks there of courage and vulnerability, which we also touched on. Friendships take work, they take effort. Everybody writes about that who's written on it. Friendships will not grow without intention, without us being intentional. Friendships take work. They require courage. They require vulnerability and a willingness to let things be awkward. The dance of the porcupines we talked about last week. How do you get close without getting hurt? The great um, mating pattern of, a, of the porcupines that dance on their hind feet to come close to one another. That as is tags that we all carry, the fact that we are that everybody is normal until you get to know them. 
the fact of intention and courage and vulnerability is so important in developing friendship. And then she mentions the fourth thing in our article is ritual. It is easier to make friends and keep friends when we follow ritual, when we have dates in the diary, which is why things like activity groups, book clubs, regular hikes, walking groups, things that are baked into our diaries because we all struggle to fit in that extra diary entry. Daisy Goodwin wrote a piece in the Times this week and uh, she speaks of her father who's in his 70s and she said, my father who has a talent for friendship, and I think it is a talent, writes a letter, a physical one, to a different friend every single day of his life. I don't think he has ever felt lonely. The power of ritual in friendship, the power of regularity, which is why it's so important to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, the importance of small groups and activity groups and doing things together on a regular basis. The fifth thing that she identifies is imagination, that we require imagination to be good friends, to use our imaginations. Society is a place for friendship, but so often friendship is placed at the sidelines. And what she writes, and others write of it too, is that to be a good friend, we need to be imaginative, to use our imagination in how we show friendship to others. Jan Peterson wrote a book, a little book, and she said, use your imagination and be creative in your giving to one another. And finally, the sixth point, which is what I want to jump off for my first point today and what we're talking about, is what uh, Julie Beck had and found in all of her interviews over three years of all of these friends from all around the world, of all different generations. She said, what I find is so important in friendship is grace. She said in her article, I am not religious but I do love the concept of grace, of a gift so profound that it could never be earned or deserved. I mean it in two ways. One is the forgiveness that we offer each other when we fail or when we fall short. And the other is the space that creates for connections and reconnections that feel nothing short of miraculous. Writes a secular writer, I love the concept of grace of forgiveness, of second chances in friendship. And she said, wherever I saw friendship that worked, grace was in evidence. Grace was something that I identified. Um, And this is a non-Christian writer. I think we've already covered a lot of that material in those points, but I want to look at the two points this morning of forgiveness and of faithfulness in friendship. Those two things on the back of what we've been looking at these last few weeks. Forgiveness... And I'm going to use some of the Proverbs in the Bible to help me. Forgiveness, writes Phil Knox, is vital but often overlooked as an aspect of friendship. When it comes to hurting those closest to us in our broken, fallen humanity, it is often a case of not if, but when we will do that. Some of my best friends and friends over the years I have always required forgiveness from them and they from me. Forgiveness is the solve and grace are the solves that heal the wounds of friendship and intimacy. And if we do not forgive and if we cannot forgive and if we do not show grace to one another, we will never ever build prevailing friendships. 
So the Bible is quite clear on several of these aspects and subtexts to forgiveness. A friend does not hold grudges. A friend does not hold grudges. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says that love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Friends do not keep an open file in their brain that is marked ways that you have hurt me. Keeping a long and detailed record of wrongs is like building friendships with a revolver under your coat. It's no way to make friends or to keep them. The soul of the wicked, uh, Proverbs 21 verse 10 says, desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. No mercy (laughs) in his eyes. Thomas Merton said that the gospel is mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Uh, An enemy or a, a wicked person, you will not find mercy in their eyes. A friend does not hold grudges. A friend does not seek revenge. They are eager, eager to overlook faults and quick to forgive. Proverbs 24, verse 28 to 29. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. (laughs) After we have been wronged, by someone, especially perhaps a friend, and wounded. No human right seems more sacred than the right to get even. Richard Nixon was heard muttering on his tapes that recorded him secretly. They are going to get it. (laughs) The Greek poet Homer, smacking his lips, thought about revenge. He said, it tastes so sweet. We swirl it around on our tongues and we let it drip like honey down our chins. And there is, of course, the phrase, don't get mad, get even. (laughs) And sometimes we look at someone, we don't want that person to admit their mistake and flip as an apology like a tenpence piece and go on as if they've done nothing worse than burp before dessert. We want to see them turn and burn on the rotisserie of remorse. (laughs) And there is something in us that wants to get even, but the proverb says, do not not hold grudges and do not seek revenge. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay them back for what they have done. A friend doesn't do that. What a friend does is a friend often overlooks and covers over offense. And if you're going to have friends and keep friends, you're going to have to learn how to do this. Uh, Joseph Epstein, in his book on friendship, wrote about this. Um, He's a Jewish author. He said, another of the obligations of friendship is accepting each other's weaknesses and flaws and limitations. He quotes Shakespeare, a friendly eye is slow to see small faults. 
in, in Julius Caesar. But sometimes the faults are not so small, writes Joseph Epstein. Yet if the good feeling of friendship is strong, they can also be, if not quite overlooked, at least accepted as part of the deal of friendship. A friend should get the benefit of every doubt. As much slack as possible must be cut for him. Proverbs 17 verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. There's an episode in the Bible in the Old Testament where Noah, good old Noah, gets blind, stonking drunk. And he ends up lying naked on his bed, which in his day and age was a particularly shameful thing. His son Ham comes in and sees that his father is both drunk and naked. And he goes out and he tells his brothers and says, Dad is drunk as a skunk and he's no clothes on. But the other brothers, um, Shem and Japheth, what they do is they take a cloak and they back in backwards to their dad's room. They take the cloak and they cover his nakedness and they cover his shame and lay a cloak over him. And um, there's a curse that comes on Ham and his family because of what he does, because of his exposure of shame and of his father. It's a slightly odd story. I remember a time, I've mentioned it before, but I remember a time as a teenager when I was particularly struggling and I was at my grandma's house and I started to cry and my brother-in-law Chris, I was, I don't know how old I was, 12, 13, maybe 13, my brother-in-law Chris started to talk to me in my grandma's um, entrance hall and the rest of the family were filtering in and uh, I remember feeling both the pain of what I was feeling, but also feeling a bit ashamed and embarrassed that I was crying. And I remember how Chris just stood and covered me, <laughs> stood in front of me. I noticed him doing it so that the others wouldn't see me in my vulnerability and in my crying and in my tears. He, he covered me. He stood in front of me. And I truly appreciated it. And I remembered it. Dave has always said to me over the years when in times of conflict or difficulty, when people perhaps have, have done the wrong thing or have said the wrong thing, always try and give people a way out. Always try and give people a way out. Always try and show grace. And if we are to be true friends and to develop friendship, we cannot be people that are easily offended. And we cannot be people that carry grudges we cannot be people that refuse to forgive. There's a whole life lesson in this, in Jesus, and his treatment of Peter, his, one of his closest friends, one of his inner circle. And Peter said to Jesus, didn't he? He said, Lord, they might all do a runner on you. They might all let you down. But I will never let you down, Jesus. I'll be with you through thick and thin. I'll never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus, of course, knew what would happen. And he said, before the cock crows, you, you're going you're to deny me three times, Peter. And Peter did, of course. And, and not long after promising eternal friendship to Jesus and faithfulness and loyalty, in the heat of the moment, he lets him down utterly and completely and betrays him with swear words and curse words. But what we learn from 
that episode and, and others like it is that four things about forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is absolutely necessary in our lives. And primarily for the friend that has been hurt. If you're the one that's on the receiving end of hurt, the receiving end of a friend letting you down, bitterness and resentment are potent. They are dangerous and they are joy-stealing. And they make us less loving and they make us less lovable. Unforgiveness, as the saying goes, and we've all heard it, or many of us have, is like you drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. There is a reason that we were taught to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. Forgiveness in any and every relationship is absolutely necessary. But secondly, forgiveness is a choice. Sometimes we need to forgive people and choose to forgive people who are not sorry for the way that they have hurt us. Sometimes the person that has hurt us is dead or has died. Or sometimes they're not sorry. Sometimes they will never repent or apologize for what they have done. Forgiveness is a choice on your part. It releases you. But we can choose to forgive. And forgiveness is for our benefit as much as the person that we are forgiving. And thirdly, the thing about forgiveness is that it is not the same as restoration and reconciliation. And many times down the years, um, we have equated the two to equal the same thing. So we've said that if you forgive someone, you must get back into relationship with them and be reconciled to them and restored to them. Now, of course, that gets very crucial in the breakdown of a marriage or in an abusive relationship or in in, in situations where a level of betrayal and, and breaking of trust is such that restoration and reconciliation is very difficult. In the area of friendship, the aim is always and would always be to overlook minor offenses and to believe the best and to put the best construction on things and to show grace. And all wrongs in friendship should lead to forgiveness. But it is important to state that not all should lead to restoration and reconciliation. It is important to differentiate between the two. We would always hope for restoration and reconciliation, but in some cases it's not possible. And fourthly, forgiveness between friends is a gift that must be graciously given and graciously received. What Jesus did when Peter let him down, of course, was that he forgave him and he restored him. And Peter weeps bitterly, we read, when he realizes what he's done. When he realizes how he's ruptured such a precious friendship and let down his master and his rabbi. How he has betrayed him. And though he said he never would. And then Peter has to go through the agony of watching Jesus being scourged and whipped and beaten and crucified. But then comes a moment of reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration. And to reconcile and to be reconciled requires humility on our part and on the part of each side of the relationship. And it requires honesty and it's not easy. When we get things wrong in a friendship, 
we must say sorry and ask for forgiveness. And when someone apologizes to us, we must accept the apology and express forgiveness also. Such a vital part of our relationships with one another. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Now, what forgiveness does not do, and it never does it, it does not excuse bad behavior. It is not forgetting bad behavior. It is not reconciling necessarily. When you forgive someone, writes Lewis Smeads, you are dancing to the rhythm of the divine heartbeat. God invented forgiveness as the only way to keep his romance with the human race alive. And John Ortberg in his book writes, in a world of porcupines, you are going to receive a lot of quills. If you don't forgive, if you let pride or resentment or stubbornness or defensiveness stand in your way, you become a hard and bitter person. You carry a burden that will crush the humanity out of your spirit. You will grow a little colder every day and you will die. And so words that people are longing to hear, if you remember that research, three sets of words, I love you is what we're all longing to hear. I forgive you and dinner is ready. Those (laughs) are the three things that we're longing to hear. Hospitality, dinner is ready. I love you, I forgive you. Forgiveness, grace, Even secular writers can identify it as a fundamental aspect of our friendships. To overlook small offenses, to cover over shame, to give people a way out, not to always insist on being right. To be forgiving and gracious is the salve of friendship. The second element that I just wanted to pick up on as we draw this to a close today is faithfulness, the faithfulness of friendship. We see at least three characteristics of faithful friends in Proverbs. The first thing to note about a faithful friend is that they are always there in times of trouble. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend and do not go to your brother's house in the day of a calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away says Proverbs 27, verse 10. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for times of adversity. Given how important family is in the Old Testament, it's surprising that Proverbs would say, don't go to your brother's house who's far away. Go to your friend's house who is near. The thought seems to be, don't overlook your friends. They will be there for you every bit as much as your family will. Contacts are good. Networking can be valuable. Having a plethora of acquaintances and well-wishers is nice. Racking up friends on Facebook is fine. But real friendship, says Proverbs 17, is proven in adversity. You will find out who your real friends are when you go through the mill, when you go through the ringer, when you're in the bunker, who will be with you. Fake friends go away when you're in trouble. Faithful friends get better when times get harder. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
We all of us have in life, don't we? We have mountaintop moments and we have valley moments. We all have the ups and we have the downs. And Romans 12, 14 in the message says, laugh with your happy friends when they are happy and shed tears when they are down. One of the primary purposes of friendship is to share joy and celebrate the delights and trivialities of life. There are some moments that are the mountaintop moments of life. They're amazing experiences. Times to celebrate. There are times of sweet success. Times when you put the work in and something has come to fruition. Times where something has crossed the line and you've made it after much effort and much work, after much intense work and investment. And these times are all the sweeter for being able to share them with friends to mark the milestones. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to mark the milestones and the mountaintop moments of your life with your friends. Make the most of every one of them. Celebrate them. Put up an Ebenezer stone and say, God has been with us this far. This is a moment to celebrate. This is a moment to cheer one another on. This is a moment to say, well done. You have done a great Job, I am so proud of you. I can see how hard you've worked for this. I can see how much it means to you. Let's get around each other's tables. Let's celebrate those key birthdays, those anniversaries, those moments of success. They're so important, and it's important to share those moments of joy with our friends. But of course, there are the valley times as well. There are the times that we're in the valley, times of great discouragement, of great bereavement, of great disappointment and pain. And it's of great significance that Jesus invites his inner circle of Peter, James, and John to be with him on the mountaintop and the valley experiences of his ministry, both symbolically and literally. Come and be with me in this moment. Takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Takes them up onto the mountaintop for the transfiguration. Moments of mountaintop and valley experiences. Faithful friends are to be there in those moments and are there through the toughest times of adversity. But faithful friends are also people that will encourage you, will encourage you at a deep level. Last week, we, we talked about the fact that we all need a Jethro and a Joshua. We all need those intergenerational friendships. And there have been key moments where somebody older and wiser can help us and advise us and And those friendships are very rich. But we also, all of us, need a Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas, the guy that was just always had an encouraging word. And even when there were fallouts and conflicts, as there were in the early church, and leadership struggled, Barnabas was the man who encouraged and saw the best in others, who who said, give John Mark another chance. I know he's let you down, Paul, but give him another chance. Let him... You know, let him in to the ministry again. Show him some grace, Paul. He's a man that encouraged greatly. And some people are radiators. Wherever you are with them, they radiate heat. They give out light and warmth. Others are drains. They will drain you. (laughs) Be around some radiators in your life. People that will warm you and encourage you and speak life to you. You know who they are. You can... You can identify them pretty easily. Proverbs 16.24 says it, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing 
to the bones. Have you ever had that moment where someone has just said the right thing at the right time? The things that we say are so powerful. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message version of the Bible and wrote many books, he died fairly recently. And within a few months of him dying, his wife Jan also died. And she's perhaps not as well known as Eugene is. But I, I found a little book that she'd written on friendship called Becoming Gertrude how our friendships shape our faith. So it's a nice little book. It's just five chapters. I read it this week. And she writes in that book, she says, as I entered into my teen years, a good deal of my spiritual growth came from just on the other side of the backyard fence. I often found myself walking through the gate and knocking on Gertrude's screen door where I was always received with a warm welcome and I come in, I'll get us some lemonade. You go out on the porch. And those visits had a profound influence in my life. Even at 13, I was beginning to understand the kind of woman I wanted to be as I grew up. I wanted to be like Gertrude. Her loving friendship showed me how powerful it can be to live a life of being readily available to others, to listen, to care for them, and to engage with their lives. Have you ever been ravenously hungry? Really, really hungry. Depleted. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Parched. Think I have to drink something. When someone feeds you or gives you a drink, in those kind of circumstances, the food tastes so good. The water feels life-giving. An encouraging word on a hard day is like food to a starving person or water to a parched soul. And we have such power in our words and the ability to encourage one another to be that kind of faithful friend. When I did the cycle ride around Israel, I looked at a mountain top that we were due to cycle over and the guy gave us an, uh, a choice. He said, you can get in the minibus and go to the next stop or we can go over the top of those mountains. And I said to the guide, I said, I'm not sure I can get over that mountain. And he said, I've been watching you these last days. You can take that mountain. And so I did. <laughs> and, but it was the words of encouragement to give courage. Uh, the core, Latin is core heart, to give somebody heart, <laughs> to give someone courage. <laughs> you can take that mountain. And we can say that to our friends sometimes. And those words of encouragement are so timely, they make all the difference. But, so faithful friends, they're encouraging, and they are creative with their encouragement. Faithful friends sometimes cover over minor offenses. They let things slide. They don't sweat the small stuff. But faithful friends also challenge each other. Faithful friends do not flatter you. They are not flatterers. To be encouraging does not mean to be a flatterer. Faithful friends sometimes confront you and sometimes are honest with you in a way that others are not. They tell you the things that you don't want to hear but that are true nevertheless. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend who corrects out of love and concern 
But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful because they serve his hidden agenda. Someone can kiss you all over and still be your enemy. (laughs) They can flatter you. But a faithful friend sometimes will wound you, (laughs) will confront you, will tell you the truth that you don't necessarily want to hear. Criticism is not necessarily enmity, and flattery is not necessarily friendship. Good friends, what they do is they speak to someone. They don't speak around them. It's amazing how many people we talk to when we have a personal conflict, but we avoid talking to the person with whom we have the conflict. And Proverbs is right when it says, argue your case with your neighbor himself. And do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you brings shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. There is faithfulness in grace and truth from a friend. And gossip is the antithesis, the opposite of this. So Proverbs says, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. And so it's important to be a faithful friend is both to encourage and give courage, but sometimes also to confront and speak truth. But you need connection before you get correction. So forgiveness and faithfulness, two final pillars of our friendship matrix, and they are ultimately found in Jesus, the greatest friend, the ultimate faithful and forgiving friend who brings out the best in us. That connection that you have felt to someone else might be an echo of an even more powerful friendship that could be possible. I want you to know in no uncertain terms that the best news in the universe is that a friendship with God is not only possible, but it is freely available. There is no one so forgiving and there is no one so faithful as God. There is no friendship like a friendship with God. That is our starting place and our finishing place for all other friendships. Christians, write Phil Knox, should be the best of friends to those around them. We have the architect of relationship living within us and the life we are called to of love, generosity and self-sacrifice. In the example of Jesus, we should make for spectacular friend-making material. Moreover, the hallmark by which Jesus said we would be recognized as his followers was not our religious practices, our cheesy Christian t-shirts, or our fishy car stickers, but by the quality of our relationships. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Let's pray. God, we want you to be in our everything and there isn't a spiritual box and a non-spiritual box. 
We thank you, Lord, that relationships are the way that you made us. You made us for intimacy and for friendship. Friendship with God, first and foremost, and friendship with one another. I pray, Lord, that in areas of our lives where we need to express and practice forgiveness, we will realize this morning its utter importance, the command of Scripture to forgive. Lord, that we will practice it and we will choose it. Lord, for the many, many quills that we give each other as porcupines, that, Lord, we will learn to be gracious with one another, to bear with one another, to put up with one another, to forgive one another. Lord, I pray that grace would mark our relationships and our friendships, the overlooking of offense, the covering over of shame, the releasing of people who have cornered themselves. Father, we pray that we would be gracious people, both giving and receiving forgiveness, for we will need to do both. Father, I pray that our friendships would be strengthened in grace and through the practice of forgiveness. And faithfulness, Lord. It is hard to find a faithful friend, but I pray that we will be that person ready to deal with and to be close in conflict and in difficult times. Friends in adversity, friends who encourage and speak life and affirmation, but are not unwilling to challenge and speak truth. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and forgiving friends as you are the most faithful and the most forgiving of all. Let us grow in our relationship with Jesus and in, with one another, we pray. In your name, amen.